Hey, welcome to the Lead Young Adult Podcast. My name is Rob Kantorik, and we are going to be diving into the topic of identity today. Um, before we get started, though, we're going to open up in a word of prayer. Father God, Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to be here with this amazing group of people, Father God. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to minister, Father. Lord, I just pray that your anointing would be on this word, Father, because it is your anointing that breaks the yokes of bondage, Father. Lord, it is your anointing that breaks chains, Father. So God, we only want to be where you are, and we only want to move where you're going. So Father God, I thank you that your promise is that you never leave us, you never forsake us, Father. So Lord God, I just pray your blessing on this night, God, your blessing upon your people, Father. And we know, Lord, that you love us more than we could think, ask, or imagine. So Father God, I thank you, I love you, and Lord, just have your way tonight. Holy Spirit, we just open it up, do what you want to do. The floor is yours. Father, we thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So guys, I'm really excited to, to just to be back up here speaking with you guys. You know, I, I take it as a real honor anytime to get to speak into your lives because you could be doing a million different things tonight, but instead you chose to be here. You chose to sit in a room and let me talk to you about the Word of God. So I don't take that lightly. It's something that, you know, personally I love to do, but at the same time, I recognize the fact that you've chosen to honor the Lord with your time and that you place your trust in the people who come up here to speak. You know, you come and you listen to what we speak and, you know, ultimately you judge the word between you and God. You take what's good and you leave what's not. So that's where the beauty of being in the New Testament, the new covenant purchased by Jesus is, is that when you come to faith in Jesus, you have the spirit of God. And because you have the Spirit of God, you can discern the Word. And you can have that relationship with the Lord. So tonight I'm going to lay this out for you. As I was thinking about you know, what I was going to teach on, I'd had a couple things like kind of been working in my personal walk with the Lord that I've been thinking about and, and meditating through. And um, a couple weeks ago, the Lord spoke this just, it was real soft. And I literally just stopped in my tracks. And, and what I believe He spoke to my heart is He said, I'm after a heart transformation, not behavior modification. So easy, we get twisted and we get pulled or sucked into this whole performance mentality. And, you know, I need to do things this way, one, two, three, in a certain order. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what it looks like to go to church. And I have to fit into all these boxes because that's what a good Christian does. Or this is what it means to follow Jesus. I have to do this, this, and this. And don't get me wrong, God gives us word, he gives us instruction on how we're supposed to live our lives. Absolutely, 100%. However, when you look at the scripture, you see that God is after your heart more than he's after your behavior. Oftentimes in the church, not saying this church specifically, I'm just saying in the global church, we kind of get that twisted. And we kind of only want to welcome people in once they decide to behave like us. Once they start to do things the way we want them to do it, or they decide that, you know what, I'm going to start trying to model my life after Sheena, or model my life after Christina, or I'm going to model my life after Walt, or I'm going to model my life after, you know, I don't know, Bill Johnson, T.D. Jakes. Once, I start, once you start to model your life like that, then we'll accept you, and you can join our social club called a church. But we know that that's not necessarily how Jesus did it, right? When you look at the life of Jesus, and you look at how Jesus accepted people. Jesus didn't come and accept the well-learned and the people who had studied the Torah their whole lives and had it memorized. 
if that was the case, then he would have had the Pharisees and all the religious scholars as his homeboys. They would have all been riding around in their Bentleys and their Ferraris and all that normal stuff that they had back in ancient Jerusalem. But no, that's, that's not quite how things went. No, rather we see Jesus reached out for the lost. He reached out for the people that society rejected, the people that society had written off as unclean, the people that by society's standard hadn't measured up to where they thought they should be. And I say all that to come back to the point of Jesus looks at the heart. It goes back to when you look, even in the Old Testament, when they were choosing the next king of Israel after Saul had, you know, Saul had went through his stuff, made some bad decisions, hadn't obeyed the word of the Lord. And when it was time for Samuel to anoint the next king, they lined up all the sons of Jesse. And when the oldest son came before Samuel, he said in his mind, he thought, this man is going to be the next king of Israel. Why? Because he looked like a king. He was tall. I assume he was good looking. They just say, hey, this guy looks like a king, so he's going to be the king. And that's not what God said. God stopped Samuel in his tracks and said, you are looking at people with your eyes, the way man looks at people. But God doesn't look at people that way. God looks at the heart. And that hasn't changed. God looks at your heart today. God is after your heart more than anything else in the world. The God who has everything, everything, think about that. It says the gold is his, the silver is his. This earth and all of creation is his. In the beginning, it said that he made everything. Everything was made through Jesus, everything. But here we are thousands of years later, and what does he want? You, you, your heart. Me, my heart, that's what he wants. Just think about how amazing that is. That the God of the universe, it's just mind-blowing. When you stop and actually think about it, and not just think about it as a theory, but say, you know, this living God that I have a relationship with, that I speak to every day, who hears me, and when I'm quiet enough and I actually stop moving long enough to listen, speaks back. Maybe it's not an audible word. Maybe it's, you know, he highlights scripture to you. He shows you a mental picture. You know, you start seeing the number 11 or something, whatever number it is for you. You see it everywhere for a period of time. I think right now, Sean Foyt, I can't remember what number, is it 222? Sean Foyt, um, worship leader, kind of activist right now. He's seeing the number 222 everywhere. And God has linked that, he has linked that number back to confirmation from God because that's one of his life verses in the Bible. I want to say it's like Kings 22 or something. I can't remember the exact verse. But God speaks in so many different ways. And oftentimes he is speaking and we're just not catching it. We're just not listening. And I think that we have this tendency to think, I won't say think, I'll say we have the tendency to minimize God's ability to be heard and, max, and we want to amplify our inability to hear. But believe me, think about your parents at home. When they, when, when they want you to hear, hear them, you hear them, right? What do they do? Robert Joseph Cantoric. Oh, my parents would make sure I, was, I heard them. You know, it's the Lord will make himself heard. We just have to slow ourselves down and hear him.
But as I've been meditating through the word, some of the verses that I've just kind of started jotting them down that I've kind of been meditating on. One of them was uh, Proverbs 4.23. You probably know it. Um, Guard your heart above all else, for from it flows the issues of life. One translation actually says, from your heart, the direction of your life comes. So when you think about that, your heart, the things you're meditating on, your thought life, how you speak about yourself, how you think about yourself, the way you think about the world directs your life. And that's why it talks about it's so important to guard your heart because you're not guarding your heart from people, although there may be a season or a time where it's like, you know, I have to take a step back or, you know, maybe God moves you into a new group. But it's the fact that you are protecting your heart. You're protecting your ability to hear what God's saying to you. You're saying a time that you're setting apart that time to hear the Lord and to grow with him so that God can position you for his best for your life. Another one that I wrote down was Ezekiel 36, 26. I wrote this down this morning. Um, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Now, that, now it's important to understand the context for this because this is Old Testament, right? So in the Old Testament, the people had turned away from God. And we know that once Jesus comes and you receive salvation, you, you're born again, your spirit is born again, and God begins to work on your heart. In the Old Testament, he was declaring that he was going to do this work in people's hearts so that they would turn back to him, and that as they turned back to him, that they would walk in holiness. And what that would do is it would magnify the name of God to the nations when they saw the people that followed God, how they, how they carried themselves and how they lived their lives they would be so set apart that it would bring glory to the name of God. And the last one that I have right here is, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They shall be my people and I will be their God. For they shall return unto me with their whole heart. This is Jeremiah 24, 7. And I hit on it already, but from the start, God's been after your heart. And I, and I think the last couple words here kind of tell us the whole story. They shall return to me with their whole heart. Don't get me wrong. God, God will meet you where you're at. And you'll have the encounters. And God will begin to draw you because it says that the goodness of God and the mercy of God will follow you all the days of your life. I think one of the songs out in worship kind of hit on that today. You are not going to outrun the goodness of God in your life. The mercy of God in your life. Mercy is not getting what, what, what you should, what, what you deserve, right? So when you break it all down, basically we, I've heard it said a million times, but basically if you judge your own actions, even the best person deserves hell, right? But God's mercy is greater than that. God's mercy provides the way out. His mercy and his goodness will pursue you all the days of your life. God's a pursuer. He's after your heart. Above all else, he wants your heart. From this series, what I, I really want you to grasp is that the God of the universe loves you and that he's calling you home or he has already called you home as his child. He is working in you and he's working through you 
in ways you, you can easily recognize and in ways you don't recognize yet. I've been real, I'm really excited to share this with you. No, this isn't even the message. This is just the beginning. This is just laying the whole foundation. And I, got, I get three weeks. Yeah, we'll all smile because I'm real happy. <laughs> but uh, all that, the summary, the intro, just to kind of say to you guys, you know, this, the title for today's message is The Power of the Personal Encounter from Jacob to Israel. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of, of Jacob, but... It was a story that, honestly, I never overly cared for. And then I started reading it in this year, basically. Um, I mean, I've read it before, but I really started diving into it this year, and I started falling in love with the story of Jacob. There's just this redemption, this redemptive quality of it, where you see someone whose heart is, is harder, and you just see how God just continues to encounter him over and over again, and how the goodness of God brings him to the point where he ultimately, by the end of his life, we see that he surrenders and, and he recognizes the God of Israel as his own God. And there's some very specific words in here where, where you know, he's raised in a godly home. So you would, you would think, oh, well, of course he follows God. Of, of course, there's no question. His father's Isaac and his grandfather's Abraham. Of course, the grandson of Abraham is going to be all in on this. But there's a few, there's a few words where when you really start to look at it, you realize that He's kind of wishy-washy. But then by the end, we see where he accepts the Lord Yahweh as his God. Um, if you have your Bible app or, or you have a Bible, you turn to Genesis 27. And we're going to open up, start talking about Jacob. But Jacob got his name and was defined by an action at his birth. When he was born, he grasped the heel of his twin brother, Jacob. And because he grasped his heel, they gave him the name Jacob. The name Jacob means heel grabber or deceiver or a subplanter. Rob won the world's a subplanter. No one uses the word subplanter anymore. A subplanter was someone who would basically take something that wasn't theirs, eradicate that person, and replace them and take their place there. Maybe you can relate to being labeled or identified at some point in your life, maybe in high school, and it's kind of become this definition for you. You know, maybe, maybe you were the smart kid in high school. Maybe you were the high school quarterback. Maybe it was negative. Maybe you were the failure. Maybe you're the kid who flunked every single year of school. And that labeled the things that people put on you, the way the teachers talked about you, um, you've allowed that to define you. One, one thing that I think is kind of funny is I've, I was actually, we pulled out our yearbooks, Christina and I. Um, if you're not here, you're not in the room, or if you're new. My wife is Christina, and we have two amazing daughters. And so my daughter's running track, Jade and my oldest. So we pulled out our, our high school yearbooks just to kind of show her, like, hey, here's our high school track pictures. Ha, ha, ha. Um, so, so, so we pull them out, and, and we're looking at these track pictures. And... I turned to one page and I saw the section where people vote and they're like, oh, most likely to succeed. Was anyone in here voting most likely to succeed? You don't have to answer. I'm just saying. 
Uh, oh, okay, Sheila, I'm, I'm glad one of us was. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought about that and I was like, my idea of success at 18 years old is so totally different than my idea of success now. Maybe your idea of success has changed. Maybe you know, you're still figuring out you know, what does success look like to you now in your life. And, and I kind of thought about it and I was like, you know, I kind of feel bad for those people. Because now, I mean, if they, if they show up anywhere with people from high school and they're not like an astronaut flying to NASA or something, it's like, you underachieved. You're supposed to be the successful one. It's like, we set them up on high standards with those labels. Because that may not have been who they were. It was just who we perceived them to be. How often do we get caught in people's perceptions of us? John Maxwell, he's a leadership speaker and author. He has a quote, and the gist of it is, you become, you become like who the most important person in your life thinks you should become. So if, you're, so if one of your parents is the most important person in your life, and they think you should become an engineer, chances are, based on Maxwell's quote, you're going to have the tendency to lead toward becoming an engineer. You know, you can substitute any, any, any other person in your life. You know, your fiancé, your, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your uncle, whoever it is, in whatever direction it is. You know, maybe it's not so much a career thing as it's um, hobbies or, I don't know, you can fill in the blank there. But that's the influence that other people have in our lives. And we have to learn that God's voice and what God is speaking to us in our private prayer time, I'm not saying it's always an audible word. I, I use the word speak loosely. Actually, for me, I'll just go out there and tell you, it is not a loud, audible voice. I use that so loosely that sometimes it gives a bad idea. But God speaks through different things. And what God is speaking about to you, about who you are, you have to amplify that over the voices of anyone else in your life. Because who God says you are is your identity. In Genesis 27, I think you know, most everyone should be there now. Um, we see with Jacob now, we talked about how he was defined by his name in that first action. And by this point, his father Isaac says that he doesn't, doesn't he's basically losing his eyesight losing his senses. He doesn't know how much longer he's going to be alive. He says, you know, I'm, I'm going to probably die soon. And the reason for this is he wants to make sure that he imparts the blessing of the father to the firstborn. And Isaac's, or sorry, not Isaac, Jacob's mother overhears this. And she loves, she favors Isaac, or Isaac. She favors Jacob. Isaac favors Esau. But Esau, being the firstborn in that culture, that firstborn right was his. But the mother was determined that it was going to go to Isaac, to Jacob. Why do I keep mixing them up? To Jacob. Sorry about that. To Jacob. So, they come, so she comes up with this plan, and Jacob puts on Esau's clothes, and they get goat, the goat skin with the hair on it so that he would feel like Esau. He would smell like Esau, because Esau was a man of the fields. He was a hunter. And 
Isaac so in loved, so loved Esau's game that he'd go out and hunt and bring back, that he tells him, hey, go out, go hunt and bring me back some of this, some of this game that I love so much, this meal that I love so much, and then I'm going to bless you. Well, they come up with the plan. He gets all Esau'd up, and he goes in there to fool his dad, and he gets close, and his dad says, who are you? And he lies to him. He says, I'm Esau, your firstborn. Isaac believes him. But then Isaac asks him another question. He says, Isaac, and it says, Isaac asked his son, how in the world did you find game so quickly, my son? His response, Yahweh, your God, caused it to come right to me, he replied. Did you notice Jacob's word choice there? Your God. Your God. Can you think back to a time in your life if you were, you know, where God, the God that you serve now, Father God, Jesus, can you think of a day back in your personal history where God was someone else's God? Can you think back to that? Can you, can you like, can you relate to that, that point? That there was a point in your life where God was someone else's God. You had no personal relationship. You had no connection. Not by his choice, but by our, by our own. I personally think that this shows us the, basically the status of, of Jacob's heart at this point. He wasn't sold out for God. I can remember a time like that in my own life and I can think about kind of like I prayed but I didn't have a real relationship with God and it kind of came down to bargaining, begging and um, I had a whole season in the beginning of college where I did a lot of rationalizing. I rationalized what I was doing and I rationalized that, that it was okay. And I talked to God about it and you know, God it's going to be okay. Like, I'm going, to, I'm going to work it out. And, you know, those are some early college years. And obviously, I, I've, I look back on it now and I can't believe some of the things that I prayed about. And some of the things that I, that I was like, oh God, it, it's, you know, it's fine. Because I rationalized. I rationalized the behavior. Because my relationship wasn't there. He was a God, but honestly... At the time, I would have told you he was my God, but I can look back on it now and say, he wasn't really my God because for him to be my God, I wouldn't have went and served everything else first and left him last. He would have been first. But we have to have our own relationship with the Lord. Your parents' relationship, your grandparents' relationship, or if they don't have a relationship, doesn't earn you or lose you any points with the Father. It's completely personally based. We have to accept that what he did on Calvary paid for all sin, past, present, and future, and it reconciled us back to the Father. We can choose to walk in the motions of religion. We can choose to walk in the motions of, you know what, I'm going to show up on Sunday morning. You know, maybe I'll make some Wednesday nights. Um, I'm going to check the boxes. Um, 
you know, I'm going to make sure that I log into my Bible app to keep my streak up because I have friends on that Bible app. I don't want them to know that I fell off the boat about three miles back. So I'm going to keep my streak up. We have to have our relationship with the Lord. We have to get to that point where we're surrendered to God. And how does that happen? You seek the Lord because the Bible says he actually gives himself a name in his own book. says, I'm the God that's easy to find. I love that. I can't remember exactly where it is, but it's how it's phrased in the Passion. And it says, I am the God who's easy to find. I kind of hit on it already, but in Psalm 23, it says, the goodness and the mercy of the Lord will pursue us all the days of our life. And I don't think that that is any coincidence because it says that it's the kindness of the Lord that brings us to repentance. It is God's kindness that makes us change and go another way. Repentance also means to change your mind. It's what causes us to change our mind about certain subjects and certain things in our life. It's the goodness of God. And, you know, sometimes those encounters are one and done, but, you know, someone sees God in their life and it's just like, boom, done, surrendered can happen but oftentimes it's a progression it's a process but God doesn't give up on us and he didn't give up on Jacob God defines what love is and we know that God is love but he defines it in 1 Corinthians 13 and two of the attributes that he lists there in the famous love portion of scripture is he talks about how love is patient and, it's endured, and it endures God is patient with every one of, with every one of us he is so patient and, it, and he endures. It says love always perseveres. God always perseveres through anything in your life. God perseveres. His longing for you perseveres. God's desire to know you perseveres. Now Jacob would have known about God, obviously. He grew up in the family of Abraham and Isaac. So he also would have known enough from hearing the stories of what an encounter with God looked like. He would have heard about the dreams. He would have heard about the words that Abraham received. So in Genesis 28, when Jacob has a dream, he's able to recognize that it is an encounter with the Lord. And in the dream, he sees angels ascending and descending down a ladder. To the earth. And when he wakes up, he's like, God was here and I didn't even know it. So what's Jacob's, what's his response to that? He comes to the realization that not only is God real and that the God that he's heard about in his life, you know, is basically sneaks up on him while he's sleeping. His response is, Jacob the manipulator, Jacob the deceiver says, you know what? You can be my God, but these things have to happen first. He, it says, then Jacob committed himself to God saying, if you will always be with me and protect me on this long journey, and if you give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's house, then Yahweh, you will be my God. 
The crazy thing about this whole dream encounter in the, basically, the, whatever you want to call it, basically the conditions that he puts on his own faith in the Lord is all these things have to be met. But when you read two two verses before, in the dream, God literally says to him that he is always with him. He will protect him. He will bring him back to the land of his fathers. And he won't fail to fulfill every word of his promise to him. He had already told him he'd have it. He even does the throwback promise to Abraham, where he's like, your descendants, Abraham, are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He tells Jacob, the whole earth is going to be blessed through you, just like he told his grandfather Abraham. And your descendants are going to be as, as large or as in number, as large as in, as large as in number, as the specks of dust. There's a lot of dust. That's a lot of descendants. That's an amazing promise. But I think we can all relate to that. Because we all hold a book. We all hold a Bible or on your phone in the app that's full of the promises of God. But for some reason, we take those promises of God and we disqualify ourselves and we say, those promises are for them. Those promises are for my best friend or they're for my parents or they're for someone who's got it all together. We tell the Lord, if only X, Y, Z occurs, then I'll follow you. If the rest of the alphabet happens, I'll follow you with a whole heart. We place conditions on it. And you know, maybe I just preach to myself because I know my own faith walk. But I can think of times where I did that. I can think of times where I was like, God, like, it's okay. Like, once this, this, and this happens, I'm going to follow you. Or if this, this, and this happens, then I'll, I'll, follow your, I'll follow what you're leading me to do. But to go back to the beginning, God wants our whole heart. And what happens is we think we're bargaining ourselves into a better position with the Father, but meanwhile, the Father's will is the best thing going for our life. But because we look at things with our natural eyes and with the world's logic, we look at it and we say, this doesn't make sense. But we have to look at it with spiritual eyes and with a heart open and faith to receive what God is speaking into our lives and know that what he has for us is what's best for us. Because the Father, he has shaped you, he has called you, and he has anointed you for a purpose and for a journey with him. That's so important, with him. We are to walk with him. But to me, the, the heart of the Father is just amazing because he is better than we can even think and he's better than we can even imagine. Because even in Jacob's state, in, Jake, in Jacob's own like being naive enough to even turn around and state to God, like if you meet all these conditions, then you can be my God. God still chooses to reveal that revelation to him. He knew the condition of Jacob's heart when he gave him the revelation, when he had the dream. He knew the condition of his heart. He knew where he stood and he still gave it to him because it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. God can and will change and transform people from the inside out. And what God begins to do in us, in each one of us, wherever you are you know, in your life and wherever I am in my life at this point, um, God is faithful. He's faithful in every season. 
I can look over the course of my life. I can look back through the testimonies of my life and I can see where God's hand was in every moment. And I can look back and I can see the fingerprints of God on my life. In Philippians 1.6, it says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it, carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When we get to chapter 32 of Genesis, at this point in Jacob's life, like I'm skipping some stuff in Jacob's life because some create some really good stuff. Like if you guys have, you know, make some time this week and read about the life of Jacob, okay? I'm, I'm learning to love the life of Jacob. But there's this amazing thing that happens. I'm getting a little off track, but then I'll go back on track. But there's this amazing thing that happens when he's having like these issues with his uncle because he's working for his uncle. And, you know, it's like Jacob working for himself because they're both trying to deceive each other the whole time. And they're both trying to get the upper hand. And he, basically they come to this agreement and Jacob's like, listen, I'll take all the spotted goats because they, they were shepherds, they had livestock. I'll take all the spotted ones, right? So anything that wasn't spotted or speckled, Laban kept. So he, so Jacob was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a knife and I'm going to start chipping away at the bark to make the bark look like it's speckled and spotted, right? And then I'm going to put it in front of the watering troughs. Why is that going to matter? Well, what happens next is just amazing. All the sheep start bearing offspring that are speckled and spotted, so it's all going to Jacob. So what do we learn from that? What does, that, what does that have to do with anything? And what I think the lesson is in that is we become like what we behold. We give birth to, to what we're looking at. So when you spend time with Jesus and you spend time in the word and you spend time beholding him in the scriptures and time in worship and looking upon how good he is, we start to reflect him in our lives. But in chapter 32, as Jacob's getting ready to cross back over, Jacob's getting ready to cross back over to head back to his home country, which is also one of the things, if you caught it, was one of the the conditions and one of the promises of God that he would get to head back to his home country. And it's happening in chapter 32. In chapter 32, he gets to head back to his home country. And he has to stop at the point because this is going to be the first time he has to face his brother Esau. After all those years, after he deceived them and stole the birthright. I'm sorry, not the birthright, the, the blessing, the firstborn blessing. Um, he's going to face him for the first time. And this, his brother was ready to kill him when he did it years earlier. He, his brother Esau literally said, until my father passes, then I'm going, to, I'm going to get him. And his mother sends him away. So as he's preparing to face him for the first time, he, he asks God, and he says, God, Protect me this one last time. And he acknowledges the goodness of God in his life. He said, the last time I crossed over and went to this country, crossed over this river, the last time I crossed over, I had nothing. But you've given me everything. And now I'm going back. And I need you to protect me. It's interesting, I think, that our own encounters with God whether it's when you're reading the word and, and the word's starting to work on your heart because God's speaking to you through the word. But I think it's interesting that when we have our own encounters with God, it causes us to wrestle with our own perceptions of ourselves. 
because God reveals our true identity. And then we have to reconcile everything that God says about us and everything that he says and, and who he says we are. We have to reconcile what he, who he says we are with who we think we are. Everything that's been said about us in the course of our lives, everything we believe about ourselves, we have to take that and we have to reconcile it and compare it and go, but this is who Jesus says I am. And because this is who Jesus says I am, this is who I am. Your identity truly starts at your point of encounter. In the New Testament, as we see Peter at the moment where he has the miraculous catch of fish in the boat, right? And the boat's starting to sink. The goodness of God just overwhelms his boat physically with fish to the point that it's sinking. And as it's sinking in the physical, Peter himself is sinking in God's grace so heavily that he doesn't know what to do. The guy who we see in the New Testament who doesn't know how to keep his mouth shut is completely stunned. His boat is sinking under the goodness of God. And he is so being overcome with God's grace that what does he do? He tells Jesus, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Because the goodness of God made Peter stop and take account of who he was and what he was doing in his life. It brought him back to the point of repentance and it brought him to the point where he, he basically tells Jesus, get away from me. You, don't, you must not know who I am. And so oftentimes, you know, when we mess up, we're like, oh God, get away from me. Like I, I, I messed up. I, you know, I'm not worthy to be here. And Peter at the time is like, get away from me. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus does the, does the unthinkable by, by that standard and culture. And he says, you know what? Follow me. And he calls him as a disciple. And Peter doesn't just end up a disciple of one of the 12. He actually becomes Jesus' inner circle. He becomes one of three. And it's interesting to me that he also gets a new name because he's the first one to grasp the revelation and speak it out of who Jesus really is within the group. God said, or God said, yeah, well, Jesus is God. Jesus says, you'll be named Cephas, Peter, Peter the Rock. We can also see the same name change after the encounter and the heart change that went along with it when Saul has the encounter on the road and he gets knocked off the horse and the blinding light happens. And he goes from being Saul, the persecutor of the church, to Paul the apostle. If we turn to Genesis 32, 28... You'll see the story of, you know, sometimes they talk about, theologians talk about, you know, this, this person that Jacob wrestles with, you know, is it Christophany? Is it, is it Jesus in the Old Testament? Is it an angel? If it's an angel, it represents God. It's God's representation. If it's meant to be Jesus, it's God. It's representation. It's right there, okay? Either way, whether you take it as a translation that says angel or the one that says man, either way, the man shows up and they wrestle. And why does that matter that they wrestle? 
they wrestle in right before daybreak. The man, the angel, says, Jacob, he, he has to go. And he says, not until you bless me first. And in that encounter, Jacob has to come face to face with who he is before he can receive the blessing. Because just like he heard years before when his father said to him, who are you? As he brought him the meal. And he responded, I'm Esau. He has to come face to face with himself and who he is at this point in his life. And he has to say, I am Jacob. Meaning, I am the deceiver. I'm the manipulator. I'm the one who stole my brother's blessing. That's who I am. And the angel says, no. I, I'm going I'm to tell you who you are. I'm going to tell you what your, what your real name is. And what he tells him, Genesis 30, 28, not anymore, the man said to him, your new name is Israel, for you have struggled with both God and man, and you have overcome. The name Israel is important because through the encounter with God, he goes from being someone who was referred to as a heel grabber, a subplanner, a manipulator, a deceiver, to now he's recognized by the angel and said, no, that's not how God sees you. God sees you and names you Israel because Israel means prince with God. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a prince, a princess with God. That is who you are. You are royalty in God's house because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jacob's true identity came once he came to the point of confession and was liberated from all those years of what, of what was spoken over him, the labels he put on himself, his ideas of success, came to the point of the encounter with the Lord. And at that point, he found his identity. Whether it was the dream encounter or his realization of the goodness of God, it was molding him, shaping his heart. And just to hammer home the point, in chapter 34, you will see that at the end, it doesn't list it at the end of his life, but it's towards the end of the section on Jacob. He builds an altar. And remember at the beginning of his life, when he spoke to his dad, he said, Yahweh, your God. At the end of his life, after he goes through this journey, and he, and he gets his identity, he realizes how God has seen him all along. He names the altar that he builds to the Lord, to the mighty God of Israel, to the true God of Israel. The heart transformation had taken place. His identity had shifted, and he no longer referred to himself by how the world measured him or to what he had done in the past, but rather he measured himself and he identified himself by the word of the Lord and who God said he is. And that's how we are to identify ourselves is by who God says we are, 
who God says in his word we are. That is our identity. We live a life of experiences. And prayerfully, we live a life of experiences with the Lord. And as we walk with him, you know, if, if you don't know him, I, I pray that you'll receive him. And any of our leaders would be happy to talk to you, um, you know, pray with you, whatever, whatever, whatever you need. Um, if you've been walking with Jesus, my prayer for you is that your yes today is a deeper yes than it was yesterday. That you will choose to follow him with a whole heart because God longs for your whole heart. He longs for the best of your life. You're his kids. That's who you are. You are royalty in the Father's house. As we walk out this journey of faith with him, as we walk out this relationship and we see as our hearts are transformed and as our hearts are transformed, our lives are transformed. In our lives, they bring glory to God. He loves you so much. It's the love of the Father is just beyond what we can imagine. It's just incredible. So I thank you guys for your time tonight. I know I'm probably... Yeah, I'm a few minutes over, but thank you for hanging in there. Thank you for not abandoning me up here. Um, I'm going to close this out in prayer. But once again, guys, thank you so much for being here. I pray that the word was a blessing to you. I pray that it speaks to you and that as you meditate on the scriptures this week, that God will continue to just open up your spiritual eyes and ears of what he's speaking. That as we quiet ourselves, that you will hear him for yourself as he tells you just how much he loves you, just how special and how treasured each and every one of you are to the king. You are royalty in the Father's house. That is who you are, beloved children of God. Father God, Lord, we just thank you for this night, God. I thank you for these incredible people that you brought here tonight, God. Father, I thank you that you have brought world changes into this house, Lord. God, I thank you, Father, that you are just continuing to just grow us, Father. And that you are continuing to just work in our hearts, Father, and just draw us closer to you, Lord God. Father, I just pray, Lord, that as we go through this week, Father, that they will just encounter your goodness at every turn, Father God. Lord, and they're going out and then they're coming in that they would be blessed, Father. Lord, that every day, Father, that they would see the fingerprints of your hand on their daily life, Father. Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your love. I thank you, Father for all that you're doing in our lives, Father. I thank you, Lord, that you are a present help, that you are a loving Father, and that you are better and more amazing than I could ever think or imagine. Father, we love you. We praise you, we worship you, Father God, and we love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.